Welcome to the ACCP Resident and Fellowship Podcast, a podcast for residents by residents. My name is Monica, and I am PGY1 Pharmacy Resident at Avera McKinnon Hospital and University Health Center. We'll be joined on the show today by, by Dr. Jeremy Daniel. Dr. Daniel is an associate professor at South Dakota State University College of Pharmacy and Allied Health Profession and a psych- and psychiatry clinical pharmacist with Avera Behavioral Health Center. He completed both his first year and second year psychiatry residency training at VA in Lexington, Kentucky, prior to move to South Dakota. I have gotten to know Dr. Daniel through mental health rotations, and he's also my mentor for the teaching certificate program. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Monica. I appreciate the opportunity. I just give our audience a brief introduction of you at the beginning. Since today we're talking about academia, what position do you hold and what is your role in those positions? Yeah, so I'm a 50-50 position uh, that's divided between Avera and South Dakota State University. So as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatric clinical pharmacist for Avera. Uh, this involves attending patient care team meetings, completing medication histories and drug information consults, order entry, etc. lots of things. Um, as an associate professor with SDSU, I have both didactic and experiential duties. So the majority of my didactic uh, teaching is in the third professional year of the program and is related to topics of psychiatry, neurology, and actually transgender medicine. Uh, My experiential teaching is divided between IPPE and APPE activities. Um, I co-coordinate interprofessional activity with our doctor nurse practitioner colleagues. I take approximately 12 students a year on IPPE activities within my hospital. Um, I have about 14 students assigned to me for APPEs or clinical rotations, though I often assist with four other students during my off blocks. Um, Those APPE students are also immersed in my practice, so sometimes that true 50-50 line kind of gets just a a little bit blurred. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to those activities, I'm also an adjunct associate clinical professor of psychiatry for the University of South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine, and that position is mostly made up of psychiatric medical resident teaching. Wow, that's very impressive. I know when it comes to academia, in my understanding that faculty appointments varied in terms of weighting of responsibilities. Some are like yours, time must blip between um, campus and clinical practice. Some might be an adjunct faculty position where very little time is spent in didactics. And there are tenure tracks and also non-tenure tracks. What do these positions have in common and how do they differ? Yeah, I would definitely say there are more things that make them different uh, than they have in common. So when you look at commonalities, um, all will contain some level of teaching. That's a given, right? So this could be solely experiential with rotation students. Uh, There could be a didactic component there too, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be one. In the clinical specialist world, most have a practice site, though I actually know a couple of colleagues that are in more administrative roles. Mm -hmm. So they teach, but they don't really have a practice site anymore. So aside from these areas in common, most other facets kind of make academic positions different. So my balance is 50-50, though within the 50% SDSU side, 35% of that is teaching, 10% is scholarship or research, 5% is service uh, on the committees for like college, university, that kind of stuff. So these percentages vary widely between colleges and schools of pharmacy. I mean, you're correct that adjunct positions have very little teaching in general, but actually my didactic role is mostly all teaching, um, whether it's formal lectures to our residents or precepting PGY4 residents on psychopharmacology rotations. And then 
remember right lastly you mentioned uh tenure versus non-tenure and so i'm a non-tenured faculty which basically means that i get a new contract every single year tenured faculty have to submit a dossier of all their work um kind of at the start of their sixth year of being a faculty member and that gets reviewed by many people across the university also external peer reviewers as well um so in general if they decide your dossier is not good enough for promotion then you lose your job unfortunately so um i went through the same process to become an associate professor last year but you know if i didn't make it then i would have been able to try again right that's perfectly fine if, if i yeah. you know i also could have in theory stayed an assistant professor forever if i wanted to um so with tenure though once you get started you're once you get hired your clock kind of starts um and you have six years to meet all the requirements to be able to stay so hopefully that clarifies just how muddy the water can get uh, when comparing yeah. those positions yeah uh, yes, thank you. Um, that is a really great overview of types of, uh, you know, different types of faculty members. I know some of our residents and fellows are definitely interested in pursuing academic career. With the increasing number of pharmacy schools, as well as expansion by existing schools, what is the current landscape of academia like in your perspective? Yeah, so as I tell my students, you know, when they're looking for a pharmacist position or residency, the availability really depends on, on where you want to end up, right? Mm -hmm. If you're mm -hmm. flexible and willing to live anywhere to have your ideal job, then your chances look pretty good. You know, if you're only looking for one particular school or an area of the country or even a city, it's it's much tighter. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. you know, there always seem to be open positions in academia, though, but the areas of practice kind of change. So, mm -hmm. for instance, I don't really see critical care faculty positions open that much right now, but I see a lot of pharmacogenomics-related positions. I don't really see a lot of infectious disease specific positions, but I do see a lot of internal medicine roles. So some flexibility may be needed. Now, in the future, I do believe that we'll kind of get a little bit tighter. Uh, we're seeing enrollment challenges across the nation that are leading colleges and schools of pharmacy to decrease their class size. You know, if you think about it, if workload is based on number of hours taught and clinical rotations count as hours taught, then decreases in class size may require a decrease in faculty size for an institution. So um, luckily at SDSU, we've been fortunate that we haven't had to do that yet, uh, but I know others are, are kind of facing that challenge across the nation. So speaking of class sizes, college differs in their size and maybe they may be new or established colleges. So I guess what in general the School of Pharmacy is looking for in an entry-level fac faculty member. Uh, I know you stepped right into the academia after your residency training. What route did you take? Yeah, so I, I went straight from pharmacy school to residency to a faculty position. I kind of made that jump just kind of a linear piece. So uh, that's certainly one route you can take. Uh, for clinical specialist faculty roles like mine in psych, uh, then residency is probably the fastest way to get there, right, kind of doing your first yeah. and second year. However, you can also get to a faculty position through experience, right? That certainly mm -hmm. counts. Um, actually, one of our critical care faculty here at SDSU uh, practices as a pharmacist for a health system for a number of years. Years, uh, before deciding she wanted to teach and then got our ICU position. So mm -hmm. uh, basically, colleges and schools of pharmacy are looking for someone who likes to share their area of practice and can relate to students well. I think yes. that's a key. So, um, you know, I find students learn best when examples from practice are brought into the classroom to make ideas stick better. So whether that actually comes from residency or, you know, work practice experience, it doesn't really matter. You know, certainly uh, there are many routes that, that one can take to get into academia. It's not just one set path. Yes, indeed. There is always more than one path to the destination. I'm always attracted to the appeal, uh, attracted to appeal that professional and intellectual autonomy came with being in academia. At the same time, we all know that one needs to maintain a balance of the three legs, which are scholarship that includes research and publications, teaching, being a lecturer and precepting students. 
clinical services that is having your own clinical practice. Juggling those areas sounds like a big challenge to me. How do you balance? <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is a challenge and, and one that I continue to work on. So, you know, when I was a resident, uh, much like, you know, you're in residency now, Monica, yeah. it felt like I was giving 110% to clinical practice every single day, exactly. right? Over 100%, really going hard. Um, so involved in everything, taking on multiple projects, always on the unit, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Then I become a faculty member and you can only engage in your clinical site yeah. 50% of the time, right? Because of the 50% of the components teaching, right? Mm -hmm. So this was a bit of an adjustment for me. And, and even though my mentors told me, protect your time, protect your time, <laughs> uh, make sure you're not overextending, yeah. it didn't really make sense until I got into practice. So, you know, as my current department head says, no matter how big you make the box, you're always going to fill it, right? So even if you, you know, try to do your work in the evenings or weekends, there's still always going to be work to do. You just keep stretching that box bigger and bigger. So, you know, granted, I'm much better at work-life balance during the summer and fall when I don't teach a lot, but it gets a little bit more lopsided in the spring when the bulk of my didactic teaching takes place, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, thus, I just try to make sure that I'm proactive and always using my time to the best of my ability. If I have a half an hour, what can I be doing during that yeah. half an hour, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I'll say it again, you know, biggest piece of advice for anyone thinking about going into academia from residency, protect your time. Right. Set those hard limits on 50 percent practice and then just see how the other side develops and what you can take on from there. It'll be a lot easier towards the end. Very great advice. I guess another question I think is important is that how does one get promoted? I know that boils down to uh, documentation of your own performances in terms of teaching, service and scholarship. But sometimes I feel it could be challenging to reflect those intangibles such as your willingness to pitch in and trustworthiness, et cetera. Yeah, that's definitely a little bit harder. Um, so, you know, it all, it all comes back to that dossier that I mentioned earlier. So I'm lucky that my college administration has put together a standards document to help us figure out what we need to have at minimum to get rank adjusted or promoted. And by rank adjusted, I mean like I'm rank adjusted as a non-tenure track faculty. So that's still the same as a promotion. They just kind of use that for, for a tenure uh, piece. So, so rank adjusted or promoted. You know, so for example, in the first six years, I know that I need to have at least four peer-reviewed publications, wow. teaching scores of at least a three and a half out of five in all areas, service on college committees, et cetera. Right? I know that those are my minimums, and I know that you know this increases with my jump from associate to full, so I'm aware of what I have to get done in the next few years mm. to make that leap. So. Yeah. Not every place has this, though. So if you are interviewing somewhere, uh, for those listening, it may be beneficial to ask if they have a standards document relating to the requirements of promotion, tenure, rank adjustment, et cetera, whatever you're kind of going for, because that's definitely a huge help. Um, our dossier has narrative sections, so that's kind of where we talk about those intangibles, yes. right? And that's hard to do sometimes, though. I, I have found that pharmacists uh, were inherently a very <laughs> humble profession, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. We don't always like to talk about how awesome we are all the time, but <laughs> pharmacists, we're, we're pretty awesome. So yeah. I just really have to be intentional about documenting every community presentation I do, health screening I assist with, etc. Because, I mean, all of those are going to count in the end. Yeah, basically like a humble bragging. Sometimes. Exactly. You have to kind of figure out how to do that. And that becomes really challenging when you're yeah. like, oh, no, is this too much? Yeah. No, you have to put it all in there. Someone will read it. It's probably for the best of you to have that in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so is there anything you wish you would have known before starting? Is there anything you would have done differently? Yeah, you know, I th there are probably a couple things that would have done differently. If, if I got to start all over again, based on what I've learned on the job. So we talked about time management, yes. right? You know, mm -hmm. that was really tough for me in the beginning. I wanted to build those relationships with providers. So I really spent the bulk of my time on my practice side, right? Spent a lot of time on the unit, especially because I didn't have students right away. All my lectures were still in the spring. So while I was successful in that goal of building, you know, that rapport with the 
providers, then the teaching side hit, and now I feel like I was over 100%. Mm -hmm. So trust me, it's a lot easier to take on something additional than give up something you're doing. So while I was, you know, going to all of our provider team meetings, that wasn't sustainable anymore. So I had to back out of some of those meetings. Now, that didn't hurt my rapport with the providers, but you know, if it was something else bigger than it certainly could have and something that I would have to watch for. So, you know, I wish that I would have protected my time a little bit more in the beginning. You know, I think I also would have approached research a little differently too. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely a long game and you yes. have to prepare accordingly. Uh, mm -hmm. So I was lucky that my mentor pushed me on that in the beginning, even though I didn't know how important getting started early was. So I probably would have taken that a little bit more seriously, uh, though it ended up working out for me in the end. That's really great advice. Uh, I myself certainly will keep those in mind. I know you have designated time to precept pharmacy students as a faculty member, so not all of us will have a formal faculty role in the end, but um, we will still serve as a preceptor. So I used to think that being an excellent preceptor means to be knowledgeable in the area that you practice. However, as a resident, I certainly do not feel that much more than a student. Um, I remember reading that retrospective study you sent me which talk about students' evaluation of preceptor's excellence. Surprisingly, knowledge of the preceptor was not associated with students' ratings of preceptor excellence. So in your opinion, what makes a good preceptor? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty good study. I'll mention that here in a minute. But, okay. you know, I think I think that is a common concern I hear from residents, though, right? How mm -hmm. am I supposed to precept P4 pharma students when I just graduated, right? And as I encouraged you, I always encourage my residents to think about just how much you knew at the start of your last clinical year compared to how much you know now at the start of your residency, right? Yeah. It's probably night and day. You certainly have enough knowledge to precept early P4 pharmacy students. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, you know, simply having knowledge isn't, uh, what makes a good preceptor. So you mentioned that article, right, that I yeah. gave you. Yeah. Um, so it was actually published, I believe, in the American Journal of Pharmaceutical Education back in 2014 uh, by Young and colleagues, and it's titled Factors Associated with Students' Perception of Preceptor Excellence. And mm -hmm. so if you remember, that study surveyed preceptors' evaluations uh, for a few years to determine what factors had the greatest correlation with efficacy in precepting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one point measured was, you know, the preceptor is knowledgeable in their response to questions yeah. or their approach to therapy. Yeah, Guess right. what? Not significant, right? <laughs> you know, the most significant factors correlating with a student's perception of preceptor excellence were preceptor serving as a role model for a pharmacist, mm -hmm. preceptor interest in teaching the rotation, and preceptor relating to the student as an individual, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You know, the preceptor encouraging active participation in the rotation, providing good feedback, being available for questions, also ranked pretty highly among students, but you'll notice that the knowledge piece is not in there, right? Yeah. So, uh, but those are all things that an entry-level resident can do, right? You can yeah. model, you can be there, you can listen. So mm -hmm. before you think that you can't precept students because you don't know everything, remember that's not what's important. Being a good role model and you know being engaged, available, that's what's important and that's what makes a good preceptor in my opinion. I would certainly agree with all those um, points. So going forward, I will try my best to apply that philosophy to precepting students. And hopefully that can help those who are just start precepting students like me and other residents and fellows. Um, what resources have you used to help you precept better? Yeah, you know, three, three simple tools kind of come to mind. Uh, feedback from your students, 
feedback from mentors, and really reflecting on what my preceptors did for me. Those three things have helped. So starting with the first one, you know, don't be afraid to ask your students what you can do better. That's kind of something we're scared to do as preceptors. Yeah. What are they going to say, right? Um, you know, I know how I like to be precepted, but I also know most students don't like the blunt style of feedback that I prefer to receive. So mm -hmm. we can't always use one model for everyone. You know, yes. remember that factor of appearing interested in your students as an individual from that previous study? Mm -hmm. Actually asking them what you can do to precept them better can teach you a lot. It makes you appear engaged. You know, I actually remember one of my first students answering that question by saying, sometimes I feel like you're mad at me after med histories <laughs> because you only talk about what I didn't do well and I feel like I'll never get it. And that, <laughs> that crushed me a little bit, right? Um, I was giving feedback the way I like to receive it and that just didn't really work for the student. So I quickly yeah. changed to more of a what went well, what didn't go well type yeah. style. And the student gave me very positive feedback at the end of the rotation year during the hooding ceremony. She Aww. actually told me, she's like, you know, I wasn't sure I was going to like that block in the beginning. I wasn't sure I was going to like you, but you were one of my favorite preceptors the entire Aww. year because you spent time with me and genuinely cared enough to change what you were doing to precept me. So Aww, um, again, awesome. never be afraid to ask your students for yeah. feedback. Um, so that goes for mentors as well, right? You can't know everything when you start. You know, Monica, when you asked me how to deal with a student issue or precepting students yes. earlier this year, uh -huh. you know, I was able to provide a solid answer because I've had that same issues multiple times before, mm -hmm. right? I've been doing this for a little yeah. while. So trust your mentors to get you through problems. And mm -hmm. also reflect on what made your preceptors your favorite. You know, one of the things I tell my residents and, and students all the time is mm -hmm. I believe you can learn something from any preceptor, whether that's how to practice or how not to practice, you can learn something from anyone. So do the things that made your favorite preceptors awesome and try to avoid some of the things that your last favorite preceptors did, okay. right? Hopefully yeah. that helps a little bit. It definitely does. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Um, we have talked about challenges towards being the academia so far in this podcast. Um, to you, what are some of the rewards? Yeah, I absolutely love getting to show my students why I love psychiatry, right? <laughs> I absolutely love what I do. And, you know, some people come into the hospital on the worst day of their lives and they mm -hmm. leave feeling better and hopeful. And my students get to go along with that journey, right? Yeah. And see that change happen. Yes. I also love seeing that light bulb turn on, right? When a previous difficult concept finally makes sense, right? You're explaining yeah. something during lecture, you get kind of the blank stare, confused faces, you try a couple <laughs> other methods and then yeah. just watching that breakthrough of like, uh -huh. oh, yeah, like that, that's that. Oh, that's so good to me. Uh, and I also love hearing feedback from past students, right? I actually just got an email last week from a student who graduated last year. Uh, she's currently a mental health pharmacist in Iowa without pursuing a residency, all because she had experience on my rotation and love working with mental health patients. Right? Awesome. And so got to ask me some advice and share that with me. And it was great. So, um, you know, if you're a student or resident listening to this, do me a favor and contact your favorite faculty <laughs> member, right? Just to update them on how things are going. Bonus points if you tell them how they influenced you to get you where they are. Are, right? I have a folder in my desk full of those messages, and I do not intend on getting rid of those anytime soon. Aww. So, um, you know, academia is a lot of work sometimes. We talked about that, you know, especially with frequent changes that occur even in this past year. But in my opinion, the reward definitely outweighs anything that could be negative. Wow, that's amazing. That made me think, reach out to my preceptor during rotation that to tell them I'm doing so well because of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, trust <laughs> me, you, know, you may think it's a small gesture, but honestly, that makes our day when we hear that. That's good to hear. Although having an academia career requires a lot of commitments, after talking to you, I feel it could be very rewarding. Jeremy, thank you for your insights into pursuing a career in academia. Really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Monica.
Thank you for listening to an ACCP podcast for residents by residents. Our theme music is titled Jupiter Smile by the 126ers and is provided through YouTube's free audio library.